Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. So Galatians uh, chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 15. Uh, So listen to God's word. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise for If the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of faith, we were held in custody under the law. Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now, that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptised into Christ. You have been clothed with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, that is a long and a dense passage. Let me pray for us as we dive into it. Lord Jesus, thank you that you speak to us today. Speak to us by your Spirit-inspired word. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to receive your word today? Would it be fresh to us? Would it be life-transforming to us? Would none of us leave this place unchanged by what we see of you, Lord Jesus? Amen. Well, more than a decade ago, the, the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, memorably said that multiculturalism is dead. Multiculturalism is dead. I wonder whether you agree. I think he could be right, for the country as a whole at least. 
I mean, we live in a city like Manchester, and in Manchester, there are 180 languages spoken by long-term residents. And that's a wonderful thing. But sadly, experience has taught us that cities can very quickly become ghettoized. So they break down into different areas. There's the, the kind of uh, the, the, the West Indian area, the, the Muslim area, uh, the working class area. So one city of lots of different peoples, but broken down into those different groups. In practice, unity in diversity often seems like an impossible dream. Because to be united, you need something to unite around. And inevitably, the things that people choose to unite around, they are often the things that divide people. That's why extremist groups are increasingly popular in multicultural Britain. That's why Islamic State saw such success in trying to recruit people from multicultural Britain. That's why the BNP and the English Defence League are on the rise in multicultural Britain. Multiculturalism is dead. But here's the thing. Multiculturalism is alive and well in the church. And it must be. The church is fundamentally multi-ethnic, multicultural. We human beings, we were created by a God who is himself unity in diversity. That's the great mystery of the Trinity. The God we worship is one God who has eternally existed in three distinct, inseparable persons. He is unity in diversity itself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has created us to worship him in our own diversity. Many who are one. That's the picture we have right at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 7. One day, Christians will gather together from every time and every place to worship God together. Men with women. Young with old, black with white, rich with poor, CEOs with cleaners, heavy metalers with classical music enthusiasts, even Man City fans with United fans will gather together one day to worship our God. We will be one people, diverse, yet united in the worship of the one God. But how is that possible? Well, it comes back to the central theme of the book of Galatians. I'm sure you've seen this again and again over the last few weeks. One big message. It is possible because of the gospel. The message of Galatians is that the gospel is Jesus and only Jesus. Let's have a quick recap on the book of Galatians. Uh, Paul has been tackling a false teaching that has come into the church in Galatia. Uh, People have come into the church saying... If you want to become a Christian, then you're going to have to become a Jew as well. You need to get circumcised and and you need to start obeying the law if you want to be a Christian. But Paul says back in chapter 3, verse 1, no, that is rubbish. Don't be fools, Galatians. You were saved by faith in Christ's completed work. Don't move on from that now. 
Well, in the passage we're looking at this morning, Paul begins to unpack the relationship between the law given to Moses and the promise that was given to Abraham. And as he does so, he's at pains to show how it is the promise that brings unity and diversity to God's people. Did you notice the repetition? As I read through the passage, the word that's repeated again and again, did you notice it? Anyone? What's the word that comes up again and again? Don't say and. One. One. That's it. One. It's there in verse 16. It's there twice in verse 20. And then it's repeated again in verse 28. Well, I've got three points for us this morning. Three easy points to remember. Each picking up on an aspect of that oneness. First of all, a promise of one seed. Secondly, one under sin. And then thirdly, one in Christ. So the first one. Firstly, a promise of one seed. That's verses 15 to 20. In these verses, Paul makes abundantly clear what the law does not do. The law does not replace the promise. Uh, Look at the logic of Paul's argument here. He's using a human analogy in verse 15. If two people enter into a covenant, Paul says, then it's impossible for a later covenant to change it. The first covenant, that the first contract, it is set in stone. I guess the closest we get to this today is a contract to buy a house. Has anyone bought a house? Give me a nod if you bought a house. Yeah. It is a horrible, arduous process. But you know, the, the crucial point, the point when you know everything's going to be all right, is when you get to exchange of contracts, okay? When you get to exchange of contracts, there is no going back. The other person cannot pull out of the house purchase. There is a legally enforceable contract. And even if the owner of the house later on sells it to someone else, that later sale is invalid because the first contract, the one which you've exchanged on, overrides it. Well, Paul here is using a lesser to the greater argument. He's saying, if that is the case in human covenants, if that is the case in exchange of contracts, how much more does it apply to God's covenant with Abraham? The promise made to Abraham, it is not changed, not changed one bit by the later law given to Moses at Mount Sinai 430 years later. Verse 17. That's interesting. It's interesting to learn a little bit about house purchases, isn't it? But but what's it got to do with us? Why is it relevant? Why is it important? Well, Well, look back at verse Verse 8. Look at verse 8, chapter 3. What was God's promise in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham? It was that all nations will be blessed through Abraham. Now, I think it is that... It is that which helps us to understand why Paul makes such a big deal in verse 16 about the promise being to Abraham and to his seed, singular. 
Well, when you think about it, it's a little bit odd, isn't it? Why is Paul so fixated with the seed in Genesis 12 being singular? Why is that so important? It sounds like a kind of semantic word thing that's not really very important. After all, the, the word seed in English and in the original Greek of this passage is a collective noun. It, it can refer, that means, just to one individual. So, so I am the seed of my parents. Okay, that would make sense. But it can also refer to many. So, so I could say, my sisters and I are the seed of my parents. Okay, it, it can do both. So, so why is Paul making such a big deal about it? What is Paul's point? Well, he tells us who the seed is in verse 16. It's Jesus Christ. But now fast forward right to the end of the passage, verse 29, and see who the seed is there. It's Christians. It's every single person who has put their trust in Jesus. You see, the seed in verse 16, it is a collective noun. It is the one united family of God, made up of people of every tribe and tongue and nation who have found their identity in Christ. Now, do you see why the distinction between the promise to Abraham and the law is so significant? The law was given to Moses, but it was given for just one nation. It it reinforced distinctions between people based on ethnic and nationalistic lines. Contrast that with the promise to Abraham. It was for the blessing of all nations, without distinction. A promise of one people, just one seed, finding their one identity in the one Christ. This is so, so important. It means that Christians today, we have a far better message than Moses ever had. He had a message for one nation at one time. We have a message for all nations at all times. One message focused on one promise about one saviour, Jesus Christ. You know, that means that Christian mission to other countries is not imperialistic. At CCM, you have a great track record in supporting church planting. You support a church plant in Germany. You support another church plant, church planting movement in Ukraine. At City Church, we support church planting in the UAE. We're about to try and support a church plant in Lagos in Nigeria. Now, as we do that, we are not imposing British beliefs on people from those countries. No, no, the Christian message, the good news of Jesus, it is great news for all people, wherever they're from, it is their message just as much as it is our message. Can I bring this a little bit closer to home? Maybe you're sat here this morning and, and you feel like you don't quite fit in. You look around and, and you worry that the people you see around you, they seem to be from a different background. Maybe they speak a different language. 
They certainly have a different culture. And perhaps you're wondering, well, is this church thing, is this Christianity thing really for me? Galatians 3 says, yes, it is. Wherever you're from, whatever your culture, whatever your background, there is one promise which has found its fulfillment in the one Saviour, Jesus Christ. And you know, it is for you just as much as it is for the, the insurance broker or the cleaner, just as much as it is for the African or the European, just as much as it is for the divorcee and the happily married person, just as much as it is for the homeless person, the millionaire, the sportsman, the alcoholic, it is that one message for all people. Our culture loves to talk about inclusivity today, doesn't it? There is nothing, nothing at all more inclusive than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we all have the same need. Which brings us to our second point from verses 21 to 25. We are one under sin. Uh, Paul moves here from speaking about what the Lord does not do, it it doesn't cancel the promise, verse 21, uh, to talking about what the Lord does do. And, And Paul says it has two fundamental purposes. So first up, the law exposes our need. Uh, Look at verse 19. We're told that the law was added because of transgressions. Now, now some say what Paul is saying here is that that the law was given to restrain sin and transgression. It it was given to stop people from sinning. And and we kind of know that that's true, don't we? So so the fact that you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail acts as a deterrent from murdering someone, doesn't it? Yeah? Law does restrain sin. Knowing that it's against the law to murder does give you a good reason not to murder someone, okay? There's lots of other reasons as well, but it gives you one. So is that what Paul was saying? It was given because of transgressions? I don't think that actually is Paul's point here. In context, I think Paul's point is pretty much the opposite, actually. Uh, let, me, let me explain. Um, when I was studying theology, I was living in South Wales, but I was going to a college in London, and I used to have to go down there for a week at a time. And I was living for that week in, in the student block of accommodation, now, at the end of the corridor where my room was, there was a big laundry room, and there was a washing machine, and above the washing machine, there was a sign in big, bold print saying, not to be used on Sunday. <laughs> now, the college, the college had very strict views on the Sabbath. Sunday is the Sabbath, therefore you must do no work on the Sabbath, which means doing no laundry on the Sabbath. Now, under normal conditions, I would never have dreamed of doing my washing on a Sunday. Not because I think it's not allowed, because I don't actually like doing washing. And certainly, when I'm away from Anna and the kids, I've got better things to do than do my washing. But because that sign was there, I had an overwhelming urge to put something in that washing machine, just one pair of socks, just to break the rule. You see, law rules, they provoke sin, don't they? Law actually increases our rebellion against God. Look at verse 21. The function of the law was never to give life. It could never make us righteous. 
Rather, the purpose of the law was to expose our need. And that need is universal. Look at verse 22. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. Notice it has locked up everything. No, no exception. That means it has locked up you and it has locked up me. I think we like to think of the world as being divided into two groups. So, you know, you've got the good people over here, you know, the polite, upstanding, reputable people, people like us. And then over here, you've got, you've got the evil people, you know, the, the murderers and the rapists and the paedophiles. But do you see what the law does? The law puts us all in this group, all of us, without exception. We are under the law and condemned by the law. We're all in the bad group. The law provokes sin. It provokes rebellion against God. It shows us that we are all alike, locked up. Those are the words. We are enslaved to sin. That is the first purpose of the law, to expose our need. And the second purpose of the law is to drive us to Christ. That's what the second half of verse 22 is saying. Verses 23 to 25, they give us two pictures of what the law was like for Jewish people before Jesus came. Firstly, Paul says that the law was like a prison. It held Israel in custody. Verse 23, it locked up Israel. But secondly, verse 24, the law was a guardian. Now, in Paul's day, parents would appoint a guardian to look after their children until they reached their later teenage years. A guardian was basically a babysitter, yeah? You know, parents didn't want to have the hassle of looking after kids, so they had a guardian in the house to look after their kids until they reached late teenage years. And the point of babysitters is that they're temporary. My eldest child, Sophie, she's 16 now. So Anna and I, we don't need babysitters anymore. We can just leave Sophie at home to look after her brothers. It's carnage, but it's safe and legal. Babysitters, guardians, they are temporary. And so Paul says, was the law. It was only needed until the object of the people's faith, Jesus, had come. Now, do you see why the false teaching in Galatia was so, so dangerous? The law of Moses, circumcision, the food laws, whatnot, they were never intended to be permanent. They were always intended to be temporary. Their purpose was to expose our sin and to lead us to Christ. How foolish, then, to go back to them, to go back to the prison, to go back to the babysitter, now that Jesus has come. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're feeling weighed down by guilt. Perhaps you're feeling imprisoned by guilt. Maybe there is something in your past, something that you feel utterly ashamed of. No one else here knows about it. But you know about it and you've been carrying it around with you for years. And you feel trapped suffocated by a sense of overwhelming guilt which no one else knows about. Or or perhaps you're here this morning 
And you found yourself falling into the same sin again and again and again and again and again. Maybe it's overeating. Maybe it's undereating. Maybe it's sexual sin. Pornography. Going too far with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's getting drunk. Well, whatever it is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about that? The message of this passage this morning to you is don't go back to the law. Don't simply try to manage your sin. Don't simply try to work your way out of your sin. Make up for what you have done. No, go to Jesus. He is the one your guilt is screaming for you to run to. He is the one. He is the only one who can forgive you. He is the only one who, verse 24, can justify you. He is the only one who can take that sin, that thing that horrifies you, that thing that has been weighing over you. He is the only one who can take it and throw it into the deepest of oceans where you will never, ever see it again. He is the only one. He's the only one who can take that sin that you struggle with again and again and again and again and can break the chain of your struggle from your neck. He is the only one who can help you to say no to sin and yes to him. We are all alike under sin. Therefore, we are all in need of Christ. Which brings us to our third point, verses 26 to 29. You know, I think people often find City Church Manchester unnerving on their first visit. And I suspect they probably feel the same way about you guys as well. Let me explain why. Our churches, they don't conform to the kind of, to the stereotype that people who watch the Vicar of Dibley expect. Okay? So there's not simply one guy up the front wearing a dress and a kind of rough and, and you know, the all singing, all dancing old man. And there aren't people sitting in pews, grim-faced, singing a bunch of hymns and then rushing off at the end to get home as quickly as possible. Now, at both our churches, there are lots of different people up front, aren't there? And none of the men wear a dress up front. You know, as much as I've tried to get Tim to change his dress sense, (laughs) he will not wear a dress. The regulars at our churches are all really different. We have 43 different nationalities at City Church. I know at CCM, you've got similar numbers. And of those different nationalities, there are some people who are really, really loud. There are some people who are really, really shy. And of all those people, they do a whole load of different jobs. In different places, they come from a whole load of different backgrounds. But they are all good friends with each other. And when you go along to one of our churches, you start to wonder, well, why? Why on earth are these people so committed to each other and to this church? It's just weird. They shouldn't be. There is no other place where we see this many different people come together and be such good friends. Why? What is going on? We have our answer here, don't we, in verses 26 to 29. The thing that binds us together, the thing we're united around is this message, the message preached and believed week in, week out at CCM and at City Church. 
It is not something that we've made up. No, it is the same message that Abraham believed thousands of years ago. The message which the law given to Moses pointed towards. That wretched sinners like you and I can be justified. Put in the right with God by faith. And it is that, and that alone, which unites you here at CCM. Just look at the language used in verses 26 and 27. Through faith, we are united to Christ. Now, that's pictured in baptism, verse 27. When, when we baptise someone, they go down into the water, okay? That is a picture of them being united with Christ in his death, dying to the penalty of sin, dying to the power of sin. That's what baptism signifies. And then when they come up out of the water, hopefully when they get hauled out of the water, that happens here as well, doesn't it? They lean down. Get hauled out of the water. That's a picture of them being united with Christ in his resurrection, defeating the power of sin and Satan and death. You know, in our union with Jesus, verse 26 tells us we are also united to one another. One big family, one in Christ. That that has radical implications. Paul fills them out in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, in our union with Jesus, all the barriers that classically divide people, all the racial barriers between Jew and Gentile, all the class barriers between slave and free, all the gender barriers between male and female, they are all broken down. Now, that doesn't mean that all distinctions are removed. I think that's one of the problems that we've had in multicultural Britain over the last two decades. We try to deny difference. We we think that that is virtuous. So in an effort to deny racial barriers, some well-meaning Christians in the church say, well, well, I'm colorblind. When I look around my church, I don't see black and Asian and Latino people. I just see people like me. But what they're really saying is that all the different people, they've really just become white to me. And that is just as bad. No, we recognise distinction. And those distinctions are wonderful. It is great that women are different to men. Us men would be in an awful lot of trouble if they weren't. It is wonderful that our African brothers and sisters dress differently to our Chinese brothers and sisters. That's to be celebrated. Suggesting that all Greeks should become like Jews, that is the very teaching that Paul was opposing in Galatia. Differences are there and differences are good. They are the lens through which the glory of God shines all the more brightly through his diverse people. But here's the thing. We are all equal, regardless of our differences. The gospel gives us that unity. Uh, let me tell you about two people, just very quickly. Uh, John, first of all. I grew up with John. 
Uh, John and I went to the same school. We went on holiday together. We studied law together at the University of Birmingham. We lived together in our third year. We played the cello together in the same orchestra. John was much better than I was. We liked the same music. We both enjoyed cycling. We enjoyed telling jokes about judges. I mean, that's weird, isn't it? But, but that's how similar we were. We thought judge jokes are funny. Me and John. Let me tell you about Paul. Paul came along to City Church several years back. Paul grew up locally. He didn't have any qualifications. He had a troubled family life. He was hooked on alcohol and soft drugs by his early 20s. He'd switched up to heroin by his early 30s. And he basked in Piccadilly Gardens to fund his habit. We tried to get Paul into rehab. Wonderfully, he professed faith in Jesus. But then he disappeared, and we haven't seen him since. I have more in common with Paul than I do with John. You see, I think Paul very probably is a Christian, and John is not. And the gospel levels us. Yes, Paul, Paul is a sinner who still struggles, as far as I know, with drugs and addiction. He's desperately in need of grace. But so am I. Which is why churches like CCM and churches like City Church, we say that all sinners are welcome. All the time. People who struggle with heroin, with pride, with anorexia, with pornography... Those who struggle with same-sex attraction and temptation. Those who struggle with opposite-sex attraction and temptation. The bad news of the gospel, it levels us all, without exception. And the good news of the gospel brings unity to us all, without exception. Jesus and the things we have in him, they are infinitely more valuable, more impressive than anything else we could possibly have. You know, John may have had the same degree classification as me. He got a solicitor's job at, the same, at a firm on the same road as me in London. But the greatest treasure I have, I share with Paul, not John. And it's Christ. You see, Christ levels. Christ unites he binds us together for eternity. We are one multicultural family of God.